Greetings and salutations, everyone. Thank you for joining in on another Surf and Sales podcast. It's me, Richard Ho, Richard Harris, your co-host with my good friend and other co-host, Scott Lease. We are super excited today to be talking to someone who's got a ridiculous amount of revenue and sales experience. Uh, we have the one and only Mr. Andy Paul, uh, currently of Ring DNA founder of the sales house, zero time selling, author, speaker, acceleration evangelist. Uh, so Andy, thank you so much for coming on. Hey guys, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So, glad, to have, glad to have you here, man. How, how, are, how are you doing in New York right now? Safe and sound? We are. I mean, this is yeah, sort of the epicenter right now. Uh, yeah, obviously with the density of, of population here. And uh, yeah, we're basically staying inside as much as possible so i have a question because i've been wondering this sure so you live in one of these huge and maybe you don't maybe but if people live in these like you know high rises 40 yeah high rises how do you go down in the elevator like and be safe like that that's like the challenge right yeah we're so we're our building's a big building but it's spread out in multiple two big buildings that they're only 12 stories each so yeah we um really don't encounter that many people in, in the elevator, which is, right. is good. But this, this building is very proactive, very well managed. So as soon as the first sort of hint of this happening is, is you know, uh, hand sanitizer dispensers all over the building, all the employees are, you know, gloved up and masked up as, as appropriate, and they're doing extra cleaning. And, I would and just they're, they're going to bring back the elevator steward, right? Put them in a hazmat <laughs> suit, but have them, have them just constantly spray. No, I... I mean, I had somebody the other day that I'd just gone out for a short walk and uh, keeping my distance from people around and come back into the elevator and somebody's trailing behind me and they walk over to another elevator bank right. to go up and that's... I was wondering about so, that too. So. Yeah, so... Um, where, yeah, where, people, are you, where are you originally from, Andy? I know you've, you've sort of been bi-coastal, it seems like, for a long time, splitting time in San Diego and New York. Yeah. Where, where did you grew up and, and how did you get into sales? <laughs> well, I grew up in Wisconsin and um, went to school on the West Coast. Right in the middle, of course. Not, not oh, I'm sorry, I lost Diego that. San Diego or New York, right in the middle. Yeah, right in the middle. Grew up in right in the middle, right in the middle, yeah. Yeah, Madison, Wisconsin. And um, as like I say, I graduated school from college with no discernible job skills, so I went into sales. And uh, so many of the rest of us, yeah, so many of the rest of us. And yeah, what attracted so, you to sales though? What brought you to go, Oh, I'm gonna do sales? Well, I spent about five months after graduation not doing much of anything and sort of decided it's time to get a, a job and went to a real job and went to the career placement center on campus and looked. And the sort of preponderance of openings that were available were these sales training programs from big what were then the big tech companies, IBM, Burroughs, Xerox, HP, and so on. So I just applied to a bunch of those because, you know, the idea of being trained seemed very attractive. Of course, what it was was not too dissimilar from our current setup. It was, hey, we're going to hire a bunch of real young college grads, throw them into these entry-level sales jobs, and see how many we can weed out in the first year. So... What and what you know? Survive that about, experience. And then go yeah, what's that experience like then compared to now? Right, like. So my job a long was. Time ago, sadly to say, I don't mean that in a negative way. Yeah, well, 
it was 43 years ago. Yeah. And um, so I was based in Oakland, California, and my territory was east of Bay. It went from Fremont to Fairfield to Vallejo. And um, yeah, we'd get into the office. We had a big open sales room and we'd sit down at a desk and get in by eight and by 8.30, the lights would go out in the building. And the manager turned the lights out. That meant get out of here, go make calls. And we'd go make calls. You know, we'd drive out to a local business park and park the car and prospect all day long, face to face. So if it rained, you hope to find a high rise to get into. Otherwise, you got really wet. But yeah, it's not unusual. We were making 30, 40 calls a day. That's, that's just, you know, that's crazy to me. Did they give you any level of training? What was training like back then? Yeah, so training was pretty good because Burroughs is a big company. And Burroughs is a great, they did a good job like Xerox and IBM. We went away for two weeks, two weeks initially um, to get trained after we'd been on board for about a week. And this was just basic sales training. And I was telling somebody earlier today, I recently looked at some of the videos that they were using on us back then to try to teach us. And they're just laughable how bad they are um, in terms of obje oh, obje objection, objection handling and so on. Lee DeBoy, this guy's name was, and he was slick back hair, sort of like a country preacher and, and yeah, kind of embarrassing that we actually thought we were going to use some of that stuff. But yeah, I always tell a story. The interesting thing about those first two weeks of the training program is, is I come back and you're sent back with an envelope with the assessment of the instructor and, uh, yeah, I came back, dutifully handed mine to my branch manager and went back to my desk and he calls me into his office uh, just a little bit later and he's looking at this assessment. He said, so how, how do you think you did? And I said, well, I thought it was fine. I had a good time. I thought it was great. He says, oh, that's interesting. He's looking at this. He uh, they think we should fire you. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, my first thought through my mind is, oh my God, what am I going to tell my parents? You know, <laughs> two weeks on the first job and I'm done. And he said, yeah. He said, you know, they think you're too analytical and you'll never succeed in sales. <clears throat> and so since I wasn't at that time, so I'm the, yeah, more of an introvert by personality, you know, not the glad hand, hey, how you doing type guy. They just thought, you're not going to cut it. You ask too many questions. You're too curious. <laughs> you're too analytical. Yeah, that's not what sales is. And so you think about that, you know, 40 years ago, that's what people sure. thought sales is sure. all. What did they think sales should be? Oh, the used car salesperson, right? But it was ironic because it, it really wasn't. I mean, the people that were senior at, the, at Burroughs were fantastic salespeople. I mean, they were, you know, the type you want, you know, relationship, problem solvers, open-minded but yeah, just the way this training program worked is they were sort of looking for this personality type. And have you have you stayed so analytical throughout your career, or gotten or leaned into more of the analytics? Uh, yeah, I've stayed with it. I mean, to me, I think that's for me. That's I think been a key of my successes. One is the ability to, even though I am an introvert, I do connect well with people and and. I think through the curiosity, I demonstrate a sincere interest in others. I'm interested and curious and learning about them. And yeah, I've always had sort of this bent to say, okay, well, let's take what I'm doing and how can I, how can I do this better? How can I solve this problem better for this customer? How can I make this process better than I'm, you know, it's been laid out for me. And so, yeah, that's always been a was part there, of it. Was it hard for you to find the balance between being analytical and 
and overanalyzing or overthinking things. One of the, the things that I think holds a lot of salespeople back who are analytical is they just get paralysis by analysis. They're just, you know, in their hands over every single decision. What do I do here? What do I do there? Um, did you, do you, did you ever struggle with that or are you kind of quick action, like information in analyze and boom, take action? More quick action. And, um, he had a boss early on who was really, I think, instrumental in my success, who taught me is that, you know, everything's about momentum in sales and that it's, it's not always possible to sustain momentum at the same rate across all the extended process. But one of the real, you know, intentions you need to have in place is when you're interacting with the prospect is, yeah, how do you move the ball forward? You know, how do you create momentum? And so, yeah, I wasn't, and obviously, you know, we're trying to make President's Club and do all the other things we could. So, yeah, I wasn't going to sit there with my hands tied. I was going to, if anything, perhaps um, erred on the side of being a little too active and proactive sometimes. What does that mean, too proactive or too active? Well, I was, I was willing to try things that are a little different. And, and I think that's something that I see that I see as a problem a lot of times with, with sales organizations today is they become so focused on the process that that they don't give people the freedom to become themselves right or they don't give them enough time enough leeway enough rope to become themselves and determine who they are as salespeople. and and i had that and maybe part of it's my personality i had bought you know luckily i had some bosses that that accommodated me and also um you know i have this sort of bad habit as i just think i i have a better way to do things <laughs> and and uh yeah i I would say no a lot to people is, you know, they'd somebody would say, Oh, let's do this or boss would let's do that. And I would say, well, let me think about it. And it used to drive bosses nuts. They didn't want me to think about it. You know, they just wanted me to go do, yeah. but I, but I thought, you know, it has to always be a better way. What do you, what do you call, you know, in today's sales world, because I, you said something really good about, um, you know, following the process, which is super critical, right? It, it's, you know, mm -hmm. the process has been, and, and I'm an evangelist for it as well as Scott, that the, you know, the process is massively important, but, and the way I interpreted what you said, how do you let people be empathetic and authentic to themselves? Right. Within, yeah. Within the process. Right. How do what examples do you see where they're not letting them do that? Like, Hey, if I see a company doing this, they need to try and let go a little more because this will help their sales people. Well, I think that you have, um, sales managers who are too wedded to the metrics and don't understand that, yeah, everybody has, everybody has ratios, right? We all have numbers. We all have our own set of numbers, right? I need X amount of coverage to convert these number of deals based on how I do it. But they want it all to be uniform for the most part. And I see where many managers struggle is they want everybody to, hey, everybody needs 5X. Well, not everybody needs 5X. Maybe, maybe Andy only needs 2X and he's going to kill his number. Well, that's fine. Let Andy have 2X. But I've talked to sales managers and said, no, I need to fire this person because I've set this process up and they're not complying with the process. And they thought having everybody comply with the process was more important than having somebody really crush it doing something slightly different. Do you think that's because upper management, founders, CEOs, particularly, you know, in this, in, and you can, you, you've been around to see different from startup and, and mm -hmm. SaaS world to other industries. Do you think that's because they actually don't know how to manage like they don't know how to manage people. So they feel like they can control them through the process too much and micromanage them. I think it's fear. 
right? And it's, so I take comfort knowing that here's the process and the metrics. And if I don't use those, then I have to, have to go out and show that I know something. Right? I have to know how to do it, to your point. I have to show that I know how to do it and can make Fear a difference. What, Fear that they're going to lose their job? That they Fear that be- they're going to be exposed for not knowing anything. Okay. And, I, and you know, in some cases that may be the case, but that's just sort of reflection of what's happening above them. Right. I mean, it's one of these things where, where I, you know, I, I look at in my own business, you know, I was out for years selling consulting services to small and mid-sized businesses and some bigger ones. But, but I got to the point or after a couple of years after I'd started my business it's coming to realizations, I couldn't sell to the VP of sales. I had to sell to the CEO because the VPs of sales thought, well, the CEO thinks I know everything about sales. So if I ask for help, they must think I'm weak which is just crazy. That and, was definitely my mentality. Like I'm a Gen Xer and yeah. I think that permeates through Gen X. Whereas millennials are like, help, <laughs> you know, yeah, coach right. me. Right. And so, so as work sort of working through that, I think we have, it sort of starts a little bit higher up as people are sort of afraid to say, look, I, yeah, I need help. I don't necessarily get this. So I'm just going to default to the sort of compliance based system we've set up. Um, so we need to have people feel comfortable saying, yeah, raise their hand. I need, I need help. Maybe I don't get this. How can you make me better so I can help my people become better? Tell, tell us all what you're, what you're doing now. You know, you had your, your own consulting business for years. You wrote mm. a number of best-selling, you know, books. Mm-hmm. But what are, you, what are you doing right now? Tell, tell everybody what you're up to. So, um, yeah, just recently my, my podcast was acquired by – company called ring DNA. And so uh, basically my responsibilities now is we're going to continue to do this, this podcast. We've done 755 episodes of uh, accelerate and uh, over, how, over how many years, what period of time have you done 755 episodes over four and a half years? Wow. And so we're going God, there's to, our goal. we got to beat it. That's the number. <laughs> <laughs> That's the metric right there. The gold standard. So, uh, yeah, we're actually going to, we're investing a lot more money into the podcast. We're going to rebrand it and we're going to expand what we're doing. We're actually going to start doing more episodes per week, uh, some different types of episodes. So, yeah, very excited about that. How so, many do you continue. do a week per now? How, now, how many do you do per week, do you think? Now we're doing one per week. You do one a week. I can tell you yeah. what his numbers are, Richard, because I just did some quick napkin math. He did 168 per year on average over four and a half years to hit that yeah. number. All right. So when we started, we started as three days a week and then quickly got up to five days a week and did five days a week for the better part of two years and then um, scaled back to three days a week and then to, to one day a week again. And... It's interesting was we're doing five episodes a week is the most common feedback I got was, I love your podcast, but I just can't listen to five episodes a week. <laughs> and, you know, I'm traveling, I'm on the road, whatever. And, and so I'd heard that enough to say, okay, well, yeah, maybe we're oversaturating things. So we, we started scaling back. And then, uh, yeah, things just got busy with my business. So we scaled back further to one. But yeah, now we're going to take it back up again. What, what advice do you have for, for people who are just starting a podcast? This, this is relevant for, for Richard and I because, you know, sure. we're, we're, new, we're new to this. We just started in, in January. I think you're our 54th guest. 
Oh, great. Well, thank you. Um, under 90 days or so. So that's um, great. Give, give, give us some advice and anybody else out there who's thinking about starting a podcast. And I know right now there's a truckload of people starting them. They're right. kind of looking for something to do while they're stuck at home. Yeah. 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 Um, well, one is you have to commit to consistency. So the sort of the average number of episodes a podcaster produces before they quit is seven. And this is according to podcast movement. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta commit that you're going to do this for a period of time to see whether or not it's actually going to work out for you. Really? Seven. Seven. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it is a commitment of time. I think that one of the problems with a lot of the podcasts, because as you know, there are hundreds, thousands out there, millions, I think the official number is total, but is that people generally don't prepare very well, the hosts. So I think if you're going to host a podcast, if you want to stand out, is invest time in preparation. If, if you're interviewing a guest who's promoting a book, read the book first. Um, you know, I, I prepare a set of about 20 to 25 questions for every interview I do. And maybe I use a fifth of them or a quarter of them, if that. Because they're got, there in case you need them. There in case we need them. <laughs> and, and they're not the same five or six questions every episode. Uh, it's, it's unique. I may have some, I go through phases where I might have one or two questions I'll ask every guest. But typically I was doing that in order to collect data that I turn that into an ebook or something. You know, I've got a hundred experts say, X, uh, you turn into a piece of content. So yeah, you can have some common questions you ask, but yeah, don't have a, the same set of 10 questions. Um, and yeah, we got to work on that. you start attempting to try to monetize the podcast? Was there a like download number, episode number? Um, so I started uh, within the first year, first full year, of the podcast to sell sponsorships. And yeah, we're not one of the huge podcasts that's getting out know, 500,000 downloads per episode that's getting the big national brands in there. Yeah, basically I got companies in the sales space yeah. to become, become sponsors. And uh, I sort of arbitrarily set a price that, <laughs> that I thought was good value for them that was probably higher than if you'd gone on a CPM basis, probably wouldn't have been justified. But um, yeah, we had sponsors so in, pretty, pretty inside, consistently. Inside the first year then? Yeah, about, about the six month mark. Yeah. Yeah, about the six to nine month mark we started. Excuse me, and then, um, yeah. Pretty much up until, yeah, up until we, yeah, we sold the podcast. Um, I say we because my son was my my partner in it, and um, is yeah we pretty consistently had one sponsor. We had many gaps. Um, wasn't a, a huge money maker for us, uh, given again we weren't going after the national brands and the like. But um, yeah, sort of covered our costs for sure. How do you get your? How did you get your audience? Right, like some of it's just generic, right? Um, like now it's easy for, you know, you know oh, Andy Paul, like we, we kind of can go, Oh, Andy Paul's on the podcast and you know, we know our listeners will listen to it and we hopefully get some new ones who are fans of you. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, for those people who are like trying to focus, like I love your advice on, Hey, it takes seven. I love your advice on come prepared. What's the reality about growth that you give to people? Uh, that's slow. 
I mean, for most people, I think it's slow and you have to, to build it. You got to promote your every episode, you know, use your social platform. It's a great way to explain, expand your social platform, excuse me. Um, but you have to be consistent in doing that. You really can't assume that because you're gonna have a big guest on the show that they're going to promote it the way you want. Um, our history has been, and we've had some really you know, big name guests, Marshall Goldsmith, you know, Robert Cialdini, you know, people of that ilk. Um, yeah, they don't move the needle that much. Um, so yeah, you sort of have to promote those things yourself, but you just have to be committed to doing sort of doing the work and being consistent with that. And what we found over time is, you know, if we did a good job is, is we started building and building and like everything you, you go through periods, what they call pod fade, where, you know, the audience maybe gets a little tired, um, and you sort of have to freshen things up, but we always had some variety and try different things. So for instance, um, you know, you guys are doing the co-host thing, which I think is great. And yeah, I did that for one episode per week over the first 700 episodes or so with my friend Bridget Gleason, uh, who's the VP of, of sales at a company called Tidelift right now. But uh, you know, a very senior person uh, in the sales space. And so we had a show, an episode every Friday called Frontline Friday. And yeah, she and I did 100 episodes together. And audiences love that, that interaction. So that just, was one. Just the two of you. No just the guests. two of us, no guests. We, we occasionally had guests, but just a couple handfuls of times. It's mostly just her and I. And yeah, you know, Frontline Friday, we called it because yeah, you know, both on the front lines and so on. And because she, she was always building a sales team while I was doing my consulting work. Um, yeah, audiences love that. So I think what you're doing with the co-host thing, I think is, is great. And we're going to do some of that going forward again is, you know, I think having people identify with, with, with you, with, with the people on the show. It's, it's, so you have to, you have to be personable. You gotta be likable. You gotta be knowledgeable. You, people feel you're adding value because then they want to come back and, and listen, invest their time. And we've been, you know, very fortunate, I think through the preparation and, and I think in my case, just <laughs> you're served has given me a certain perspective on things that, that I can bring value to, to most of the conversations I have. That's great. I want to, I want to pull out of the podcast conversation. Otherwise we'll sit here with you the whole time (laughs) um, for our own selfish intent. Um, What are you seeing as the, you know, like everything is shifting right now, right? Um, Mm -hmm. There's there. It's totally crazy. I have conversations with people. They're like, Richard, we need to turn our fail our field team into inside sales or telesales people. And I'm kind of like, Hey, well, your first problem is you use the word telesales. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. right? How old are you? Right. Um, exactly. Um, but what are you seeing as, as the challenges for these people shifting to inside? And what advice do you give those people, right? Because I think everybody's always looking for some advice on how do I do this? How do I build it better? How do I, how do I learn what I don't even know to ask? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. I, mean, I think for the first part with, you know, converting, quote unquote, converting field sales to inside. I, yeah, I look at my own experience over decades of, of being nominally a field sales-based uh, person or managing field-based teams. In fact, as we spent 80% of our time in the office anyway. I mean, I spent years selling large complex satellite communications equipment and systems around the world. And, you know, I wasn't, I was talking to someone the other day. I used to, you know, this was back in the, before the internet, you know, I'd 
pick up the phone and cold call British Telecom and trying to find out who was responsible. And I had no, I had no contacts, no. So most of the work I was doing was inside anyway. Um, so I don't see that as a huge, huge adjustment for a lot of the field people because chances are, unless they're a, a route driver for a you know, consumer products good company or something, they're probably spending a good fraction of the time in the office anyway. What do you think is going to be the biggest adjustment sellers are going to have to make right now? Yeah, I think it's perhaps just a little bit slower pace of activity. You know, I think that there's so much uncertainty and that uncertainty permeates as much as we want to say, look, people still have needs, business hasn't stopped, we need to get going. Just look at the chain of events and maybe take a, a lesson from, you know, unfortunately, I've been through all these. Yeah, you know, the, the Black Monday in, in 1987, the Mark bubble bursting in 2000, 2011, or 2001, excuse me, and then uh, 9-11, 2001, and, and the financial recession, 28, is, yeah, it's things are going to slow down a little bit. I mean, as much as you want to push it. So really approaching with this idea of how can we best be of service to you right now with everything that's going on, understand you've got so many things on your mind, understand we may not be the higher, highest priority, how can I best be of service to you right now? And just start with that perspective and see where that conversation takes you. And yeah, it may take a little bit longer, but if yeah, I see some companies out there, just they want to be gung ho about it or even sales thought leaders, you know, motivating people, we got to be gung ho and so on. It's work, like, work 700% is hard. Yeah. It's, it's not the time for that. It's the time to be engaged. And so how can I engage with this person? How can I understand really where they're coming from right now and what's how things are going to unspool and unfurl in their organization and how does that line up with something that we can do for them? Uh, you know, see some companies doing free trials of product. Great. Yeah, that's an idea to help and, and to be utilized in situations where it really can help the company and a, a community they serve. Fantastic, right? Try something out of the box, but just be patient and be service oriented. And it is inevitably going to slow down. It has to just look at the supply chains. That's okay. But if you position yourself going forward, which is, yeah, I, I think back to 1987, I was selling a satellite communications product then. It was a services business, actually. And so every major financial services company in the world was running their, their quote system through our network. And we had 60,000 users basically in the New York area. Um, when the market crashed, yeah, you know, all of our customers were in hard times. We were going to be at hard. We had, I mean, I had literally, I had people calling me at least once or twice a week asking when we were going to go out of business. Mm. So we think about that because we were a key supplier. They saw, I mean, my customers were New York Stock Exchange, Merck Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, Reuters, <laughs> uh, Dow Jones, Associated Press. And they weren't selling anything at that time. In fact, they were collecting terminals from people. Well, it's just the same approach. You know, how can we help, how can we help you now? In some cases for us, it was actually taking stuff back. It was, you know, letting people out of contracts early, but it all came back to us within a year, came back in, in spades. You know, we, we more than made up for it because people appreciated with our flexibility in dealing with them. I'm going to shift a little bit um, to training on this topic, right? Um, you know, I, you know, all three of us are sales trainers. We all have our different ways. You've got online stuff. I've got a little bit of online stuff people are starting to look at that, right? Like, how am I going to mm. train my team 
and no one's ever bought online training before. Like there's very few, right? Right. right. Um, I think you've probably been a thought leader in the space. You and John Barrows probably too. When someone is thinking about doing online training, right? What should they look for? What should they be thinking about? Like they go into Q2 this year. It's like, hey, I still got to get value back to my reps. I still got to show them my care. There's definitely some cultural stuff that I think that matters to, you know, just because just because we can't show up doesn't mean we can't train, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what advice do you give to people who are trying to figure that part out? That's that's another great great question because yeah, I think that I think you have to be very careful in terms of choosing the content because Correct. Yeah. to your point is is what are you trying to teach people? And I just published a, a post this week is like okay we all have more time on, our, time on our hands. So if we're not commuting, if we're not going to the gym, if we're not doing the things we normally were doing during the day, this is a perfect opportunity to try to expand our business acumen and get smarter about sales. And so I think that you want to be very individualized with it is I think one of the beauties of, of the various online offerings that are out there is that, you know, you could choose one for salesperson A and choose a different one for salesperson B based on what their needs are. So I don't think you're going to go in and say, okay, we're going to go to Andy Paul stuff and everybody's going to do Andy Paul. Well, yeah, maybe Andy Paul is good for this group of people. And we're going to go to Richard Harris or some of these others just based on what their needs are because they have different, different needs. Um, and the service, you know, each of the service providers have a little bit different perspective in terms of, you know, what sales is and how you get sales done. So be very careful and look at that and say, okay, well, does this align with, with what I like or is this challenging me in a way that I think is interesting that I should expose people to? Yeah, maybe. What if I'm sorry, I was on mute. Yeah. What if I'm one of these startup leaders, these SaaS companies, these Silicon Valley's, you know, um, and I don't, I I just think, Oh, it's just sales training. So how do I even self-evaluate my team (laughs) to decide kind of what you say? Right. Like, cause I think there's that has to occur other than, well, we got to hit the number, right? We, we already know that's yeah. what's coming, right? But how do we help them realize the kinds of training they may need? Uh, I've got my ways of doing it, but I'm curious as to yours. Yeah, I think for small teams, you do pick just one solution because you want everybody on the same page, talking about the same, same methodology, same terminology, and so on. Um, I was talking about something that's a little more established, a little bit bigger. Um, yeah, new teams, find one. But I, I think it, you want one that, that is, I use the word challenging, is, is there's so many things that are just sort of rote, repetitious, yeah, kind of boring. Yeah, we've been talking about this for 20, 30 years. Find somebody that has a different perspective. I think this is one of the things that we don't do enough in sales is challenge sellers with different perspectives on how buying happens, how decisions are made, what their real purpose in life is uh, in a sales role in terms of what they're trying to accomplish for themselves and for their buyers. And we don't have enough conversation at that level because I still think that, that you know, if you ask a salesperson what their job is, most of them are going to say, well, to get an order. And, and I'm like, man, that's not your job. I mean, what's, yeah. the first thing, what's the first thing you have to do? Well, I've got to be able to connect with the buyer. Okay, that's your job. Get really good at connecting with the buyer first before you do everything else because nothing's going to happen to you. Get really good at that. And that's not the perspective we have with so much of our training is based on that end result. Get the order. We got to close. And it's like, yeah, no, there's about four or five steps before that. Let's focus on the first one first. I spent, I've spent so much of my career focusing on just trying to, to understand people. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and the motivations of, <clears throat> of people and um, both in the buyer and in my team, all my, right. my sellers and, and where, where to begin, what to interpret, how to say something to somebody, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, for one, am a huge proponent of training and teaching people tone and cadence of speech. I can yep. remember sitting with one of my sales reps, maybe must be six, seven years ago now. And she pitched the intro, like the first two sentences, sentences only to me, like 50 times in a row. And I just kept saying, no, nope, not quite. Do it again. Do it again. Just over and over and over again. Is people pay attention and pick up on, on tone and how fast you say things versus when you slow mm-hmm. down, how thoughtful and mindful you are with your, your words. Um, and in the stories that we tell and how they affect people. That's one of the reasons why for me, you know, I, I didn't skew towards Sandler sales or spin selling right. or all these, you know, kind of tried and true methodologies. I, I didn't research and study that, that stuff. Mm-hmm. I just took my own personal experience going through illness, battling addiction, right. found a way that made sense to me. <clears throat> and I thought would make sense to a lot of other salespeople who come from messy backgrounds. And, you know, fortunately enough, it worked for me and I've been able to kind of teach that to some other people and have it work, work for them. So I think those are perhaps some of the ways that folks can make it their own and, and try to personalize and, and come up with like a new take maybe on traditional sales. Well, and I used the key word, which is a word I love. I'm, I'm trying to use more often is, and it's messy. <laughs> There's a messiness about sales. There's a messiness about people and humanity and, yeah. and so on that. So often the construct or the way we're trying to get people to sell is this is the way it is, right? This is why I rebel against some of the, the methodologies. Cause it's like, here's one way or the way to sell yeah. And it's like, well, that's great, but there's 7 billion different people in the world and they're each going to react right. to the situation a little bit differently. And to your point about being mindful and thoughtful is you have to be mindful and thoughtful and deliberate of what you do in each situation in a unique way. And I think this is one of the hardest things to convey to salespeople is that, yeah, everybody's not the same. And I think we do people a disservice when we get so focused on saying, here's your persona. You know, these are the personas we're trying to sell at, sell to. And I said, Okay, it's useful, but remember, we sell to people, not personas. And so that persona is a framework to start the conversation is one thing, but then you got to get to the person themselves. Who are they? Yeah, what are they? Yeah. What are they concerned about? What are they? What's in Her, it for them? Personas also have moods every single day. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> a persona is not static, right? Like, yeah, a persona could be in a good mood or a bad mood. Yeah, and yeah. so. When this idea of, of which I says, how do we train people to say, look, every situation, every single sales interaction I have is unique and I have to treat it as unique. It doesn't mean it doesn't share similarities with others, but I have to be alive to the uniqueness. And it's by doing that, I find is where the way people sort of separate themselves, the really people become successful over time. It's as you described, Scott, as Scott is thoughtful, mindful, deliberate action in the moment. It, yeah puts you in a better position to succeed. That's awesome. I really like that. I think you just gave us the title of the episode. We sell to people, not personas. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good one. Um, I know, I know we're getting to the end cause I know you've got to get to something. I know Scott's yeah. got to get to something. Um, 
first and foremost, congratulations on selling out your pod. You're selling your podcast. Ah, thank you very much. Business. Thank you. Um, but one of the things we always do at the end is, is turn around That's and say, thing. how can we help Andy? What can we do for you? Well, first of all, get both you guys on, on my show. Uh, Scott's never been on. Richard's been, been at least two years. Yes. Uh, since we've had you on. So definitely and want to make that happen. I, my number one I had so much more hair two years ago. <laughs> my, my, my main objective in coming on your show, Andy, is to get more downloads than Richard got. It's my only thing <laughs> all right. Care about. We usually don't disclose that data, but for you guys, I'll do that just for the, the private competition. Um, but yeah, we're just, we're trying to, you know, part of what I'm trying to do sort of going forward is, is part of the mission I feel is, is yeah, how do we, how do we improve performance? You know, I think there's not enough emphasis within management ranks about how do we improve individual performance? And I, you know, sort of my common rant is that, you know, we, for all the changes we've had in sales, good changes in terms of specialized sales roles and, and the processes and methods we're using these days, sales management's fundamentally unchanged over the last hundred yeah. years. And if you and take the sucks. example, you know, it sucks. And if you take the, take the example, and I'm a huge soccer fan. And so hey. Liverpool's my team and same. yo, same, same. You never walk Dude, alone. Show me your, your thing hanging up. Ah, got it. Love it. So if you look at Liverpool's coaching staff, yeah, okay, yeah. they've got the head coach, Jurgen Klopp. They've got a first team coach. He just manages the first 25 players, right? Um, so in that case of a sales team, that could be like, hey, you have, a, you have a manager just for your top performers. And then they've got at least three coaches on the staff that have performance in their title. One is, you know, fitness performance. One is, uh, you know, skills performance. One is um, tactics. Uh, and then they, have, they have a coach for just coaching throw-ins, for goodness sakes. So we have all of it geared toward how do we make these top professionals perform at higher levels? And we have none of this emphasis in, in sales today. And, and, Quite frankly, you know, I think it's, I don't think most managers, you said I have permission to say this, just don't give a shit about performance. They don't know, they don't know shit about it and they don't give a shit about it. And it's all lip service from the top. I just want my people to come in and make a certain number of calls and we're going to get a certain amount of sales and there's no emphasis on how do we make these people better? And we don't invest in the structure of the organization in a way that we should in order to help people get better. And so it's this lack of, lack of insight, first of all, about how we should structure our management teams and the roles they need to have. Because, yeah, you look at any, even SaaS companies, yeah, we got a sales enablement person, just, you know, slap training on that person, right? Fundamentally the same as it's been for 100 years. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's we're, all, we're, we're not going to, we're, we're in total agreement with you and yeah. we'll do our best to support your message and keep pushing it out there. I have a, I have a book recommendation for you, Andy. Sure. If you've never read it, it's called, I don't know what it is, but I love it. And okay. it's, it's the story of the 1983, 84 Liverpool soccer team. All right. Write it down. You I think we're going to change the name of this podcast to why Liverpool is the best team ever <laughs> just to create anxiety for people. Yes. It will also, it will also piss off a lot of, uh, people who are not 
Liverpool fans. There's a lot of Arsenal Andy fans I, in the, Andy, in the Andy sales Andy I, infrastructure. Yeah, Andy and I probably really like. So feel free. y'all should do that. You should talk about that. What's the biggest? What? Who are the biggest soccer fans in the sales industry? Andy just said it's probably Arsenal, right? Well, there's a lot of Arsenal people have reached out to me every time I talk about Liverpool on the the program or in a blog. They everybody sort of comes back to me. But um, Arsenal, yeah, you get some Chelsea. Yeah. But we'll, you guys should we'll talk re- about that. We'll reignite we'll the argument when I go on Andy's show. That's right. Yeah. That'll be a Thank good one for you guys. Thanks for spending Andy. some time with us, Andy. Stay safe. And uh, Likewise, you guys. Stay yeah. safe. And look Thank forward you. to having you both on my show. Awesome. Thanks again, Andy. Talk to you later. Take care.